Welcome everyone to episode 16 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. As always, I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. This is part two of a story from last week called, Does Mamie Thurman Still Walk Those Hills? It's from loganwv.us by Dolores Riggs Davis. To hear part one of this story, go back and listen to episode 15. The trial of Clarence Stevenson began on Monday, September the 10th in Logan's stately old courthouse. It was estimated that nearly 1,000 curious people crowded their way into the public gallery, the balcony, and even lined up in the hallways. Still, others waited outside, hoping for a chance to get inside the door. When someone came outside, their place was immediately filled. Mr. Thurman testified he was working his usual shift from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. on June 21st. I last saw my wife about 5.30 that evening. I was working my beat with Hibbert Hatfield, and I telephoned my wife shortly before 1 o'clock in the morning. When she didn't answer, I went home and found her bed had not been slept in, he said. The next time Thurman saw his wife was at 3 p.m. the next day at the Harris Funeral Home when he identified her body. During cross-examination, Thurman said that he and his wife did not argue in the afternoon of her death. He claimed that they were always on good terms. Jack Thurman thought his wife was true to him and believed that she stayed at home when he was on patrol duty. He often praised her with the most affectionate terms. The banner quoted Mr. Thurman as saying, Mamie was a perfect wife to me, and I cannot realize that she would do such things as she has been accused of. The banner described his comments as a pitiful thing. Fanette Jones, who lived on High Street in Logan, was the first witness called by the state. It was rumored that Mr. Robinson and Mrs. Thurman had met at the colored woman's home. However, Mrs. Jones vigorously denied that she had rented a room to them. She said Mrs. Thurman came to her house about 8 o'clock in the evening on the Saturday before she was found dead. She stayed for about 10 minutes, and she brought her own linens. She was nicely dressed and wore a yellow linen dress, she said. According to Mrs. Jones, Mamie gave her a couple of sheets, but she said she worked for them by doing chores for her. Harry Robertson's testimony almost brought the crowded courtroom to its feet on several occasions when he revealed sordid details of his relationship with Mamie Thurman. He told the packed room the inside story of his many fox hunting expeditions with Mamie and how he deceived his wife for two years. He admitted he went hunting with Mamie on Crooked Creek the Saturday before she was murdered. He later met her at Fanette Jones's home and was with her for about an hour. He said he often jokingly told Stevenson to tell his wife to make sandwiches for them to eat on their fox hunt. Robertson said the last time he saw Mamie was the day she was killed. He left his house shortly after that to take his children to a swimming pool at Stollings. Later that evening, he said he went to the smokehouse to listen to a prize fight with his son and was home about 9 o'clock. His wife later confirmed this statement. Robertson was asked if he owned a hunting knife, which he carried in his hunting clothes. He said the knife was not a hunting knife, but a pocket knife. It was still in my trousers the other night when I went hunting. I never owned a hunting knife in my life, Robertson told the jury. 
Considerable worry was caused to the members of the Logan Business Men's Club, which was located on the top floor of one of the business district's most well-known buildings. The list of 16 men who was said to have had sexual relations with Mamie was never made public. Many claimed some of these men were later named to the grand jury and were members of charter families. C.C. Chambers, one of the defense attorneys for Stevenson, later served as a custodian of the legal papers of the Nightbird Memorial Church, where Mamie's funeral was held. It was said Mamie was a member of that church, but no records were ever found to verify her membership. The banner reported that the crowd was anxious to hear Mrs. Robertson's testify, and they strained to hear every word. Mrs. Robertson was described as a splendid witness. She stated her name to be Louise Robertson, who lived at 510 Stratton Street. She said she had been married to Harry Robertson for 18 years, and they had a 14-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son. She denied that she ever sent word to the jailer, Lance Hall, for him to not let Stevenson want for anything. When questioned about where her husband was the day Mrs. Thurman was murdered, she gave this account. He went to work that morning and came home for lunch. He was home that evening at the usual time and took the children to a swimming pool at Stolings. They were back by seven. I had supper ready and we ate together. She confirmed that her husband was at home at nine o'clock. I didn't have a falling out with Mrs. Thurman, Mrs. Robertson stated. We just quit going around together but we had been good friends. She said they used to go golfing at the country club, but hadn't gone since October. The banner noted that Mrs. Robertson's response in regard to her husband's alleged affairs with Mamie Thurman was very unusual. I learned they were intimate with each other because I had cause to believe they were. A woman doesn't have to be told these things. She claimed that no one told her about the affair, but it was her woman's intuition that caused her to become suspicious. She said she had not spoken to Mrs. Thurman since May. I had an enmity toward Mrs. Thurman, but what was the use to be mad about it, she said. Witnesses Roy Hall, Frank Hagen, and two other men gave some of the most damaging testimony against Clarence Stevenson. They claimed they had seen Stevenson driving Robertson's Ford sedan in the Holden area very early in the morning as they walked home from work the day Mamie's body was found. Logan Patrolman Bill Bruce became very angry when questioned by Attorney Chambers about the stains on the articles found in Harry Robertson's basement. If it wasn't for paying a fine, I'd slap your face, he yelled at Chambers. Oh no, you wouldn't slap my face here or any other place, Chambers snapped back. Judge Jackson calmed both men by saying, if you men don't hush, I'll have you both sent to jail. Chief Smeltzer testified that he saw Stevenson cleaning out the inside of Robertson's Ford sedan at about 8 o'clock in the evening on Wednesday, the day Mamie Thurman's body was discovered. Patrolman Bruce was with him when he drove by. Only minutes before the trial was over, anonymous notes addressed to Prosecutor John Chafin was found by several women waiting for the return of the jury. The notes claimed the writer saw the crime committed. They were signed a voter and a citizen. They claimed the crime would be whitewashed and go the way other crimes have gone in Logan County. We believe there are people who saw that woman get in the car and go to her death. We believe there are those who saw her get into the car and go up Trace Mountain, the notes stated. The banner reported that prosecutors Emmett Skaggs and John Chafin did not think there was anything to the letters. According to the banner, witnesses accounted for every minute of Clarence Stevenson's time up until 11 o'clock when Mrs. Robertson said he went up to his attic bedroom. 
However, the jury was only out for 45 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict with the recommendation of mercy, which carried a life sentence. Attorney Chambers immediately entered a motion for a new trial. I was of the opinion that the jury was warranted in returning the verdict they did. I am still of that opinion. There is no middle ground. I feel the court is not warranted in setting a new date for a trial, Judge Naaman Jackson said. Stevenson made a statement before the sentence was passed. I am not guilty. I have no knowledge of the crime I am accused of. I tried to tell the truth. I hope the law won't stop until they find the guilty parties, he said. Judge Jackson replied, It is a little hard for the court to take the balance of a man's life when he stands up and says he is an innocent man. Jackson then passed the mandatory sentence. Stevenson was given 90 days to make an appeal to the Supreme Court. The verdict was handed down on Thursday, October 13th, but the banner did not carry the story until the next day. In 1932, they only printed twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays. On November 15th, pleas from the Logan County branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People went across the county to raise the $600 needed for the appeal. 56 churches in Logan began taking donations. More than 3,000 people attended a mass meeting held at Aracoma High School with both whites and coloreds attending. Despite all the efforts, the Supreme Court turned down Stevenson's appeal in 1933. Norman Sloan, a Logan County resident who spent time in jail and prison with Stevenson, gave this account of those years. He never ate a bite of Logan jail food, Sloan said. Everything was carried to him three times a day from the New Eagle restaurant. Stevenson was the funniest looking man that you ever seen. His forehead stuck out, but he wasn't as bad looking as the picture printed in the banner. According to Sloan, Stevenson served as Warden Oral Skeen's chauffeur. He told me he was hired to take the body to 22 Mountain and that he didn't do anything to Mamie Thurman. He never did say who killed her, but he said that he didn't do it. Stevenson told me it was all politics, Sloan said. According to West Virginia Penitentiary Records, Stephen was received at Moundsville Prison on August 22, 1934. On June 11, 1939, he was transferred to Huttonsville Prison Farm, where he died of stomach cancer on April 24, 1942. He was buried on the prison farm May 2, 1942, almost 10 years after the death of Mamie Thurman. In 1985, George Morrison, a half-brother to Mamie, came to Logan to look for Mamie's grave. Morrison had recently retired as assistant district attorney in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had only discovered three years prior to his retirement that Mamie Thurman was his half-sister and that she had died a violent death. Morrison was born at Logan in 1925, but moved with his family to Kentucky. Later, parental rights of his mother were taken away from her, and he and his sisters were placed in a Louisville orphanage. Jack Thurman did not visit Morrison when he visited his sisters shortly after his wife's death. Morrison was the youngest child in the family, and his mother readopted him when he was 15. Morrison wanted to erect a proper headstone at Mamie's grave. However, he could never locate the exact location where Mamie was laid to rest. Alva Alvey Burgess was 19 when he said he helped his father, Ed Burgess, dig Mrs. Thurman's grave. My father was caretaker at the Logan Memorial Park for many years. He explained the cemetery is divided into three sections, A, B, and C. 
Mrs. Thurman was buried in the B section, which is located below the road and in the vicinity of the huge steel monument. I think she was buried about middle ways up in that section. The only marker placed at her grave was a small metal one put there by the Harris Funeral Home. There was never a headstone placed at the site. There is no question about it. She's buried there. I even helped cover her up, Mr. Burgess said. Morrison placed a legal advertisement in the banner and two people called him. One of the callers told of being paid to exhume a body which he believed to be Mamie's. The man refused to identify himself and said a prominent doctor paid him to do this in 1962. The other man wrote him asking for Morrison to phone him at 294-1116 after 5 in the evening, his time. It was signed George. Morrison said the man sounded elderly and claimed to be a retired businessman in Logan who knew the Robertsons, Thurmans, and nearly everyone, including the jurors who were involved in the murder. He said the man told him that a woman killed Mamie. Morrison asked how he could be sure. I knew Harry well. He was a well-liked gentleman. We talked about it many times, and he told me who did it several times. Morrison was skeptical about both calls. When George Morrison came to town looking for answers, he came to the banner office. Dwight Williamson, a reporter, was introduced to Morrison by the managing editor, Ramey Barker. Dwight volunteered to show Morrison the area, but he never got to do a personal interview with him. However, that got Dwight interested, and he started reading the microfilm files of 1932. He was hooked. He knew it would make an interesting story, but it could not be condensed into a single story. Eventually, he wrote 18 stories from the Banner Files. The stories were made into a booklet called The Mamie Thurman Story from the files of the Logan Banner, which sold for a dollar. Dwight received his share of weird calls while doing the Mamie story. One of them was from an Omar man. He said a county vehicle brought a casket to Chauncey Cemetery for burial. The year was 1932, and there were no mourners. He claimed that when some of the residents got curious, they were told the body was the blankety-blank who was killed on 22 Mountain. Attorney Con Chafin appeared before the Board of City Commissioners on behalf of Jack Thurman, who had been refused bond after the trial was over. The commission voted to accept a personal bond, and he returned to active duty as a Logan patrolman. Dwight Williamson said that Thurman later died in an insane asylum in Louisville, Kentucky. R.F. Caverlee, pastor of the First Baptist Church who officiated in Mamie's funeral, transferred to a church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, soon after the trial. On Friday, December 30, 1932, a road crew discovered several blood-stained garments and a long-bladed hunting knife near the spot where Mamie Thurman's body was discovered. The knife was covered with what was thought to be blood. It is only a miracle, Joe Buskirk said, that my men discovered the rags and knife. I told him to pull down a large rock that was hanging some 25 feet above the level of the road, and that's when the items were found. All the courtroom transcripts of the trial of Clarence Stevenson and 17 disposition copies have disappeared. Mamie Thurman's death certificate was signed by L.W. Hatfield, who was a justice of the peace and the acting coroner. The autopsy was done by Dr. W.S. Rowan, Dr. J.E. Robertson, brother of Harry Robertson, and L.W. Hatfield. The autopsy report stated bullet number one entered at the lobe of the left ear and went through the skull coming back out in the cheekbone above the right ear. Powder burns covered the left ear and cheek. 
Bullet number two entered two and a half inches about the left ear, coming out the occipital bone posterior, left of the central line. Her throat was cut, extending through her trachea, corroded artery, and jugular vein. One cut made the complete wound. Bruises were over the right eye. Her neck was broken at the second cervical vertebrae. The total cost of Mamie's funeral was $772.70. That was an expensive funeral when most people could barely afford to put food on their tables. Her funeral was paid for in cash by her husband, who was employed as a city patrolman. As I wrote this story, I was reminded of the old Dragnet TV police series. One line that Jack Webb's character, Sergeant Joe Friday, repeated often stands out in my mind. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's what I've tried to do, stick to the facts through research. However, this true life story may always remain a mystery. After all these years, some really still think that when the night winds wail, Mamie's restless spirit still walks those hills. Here's a story from NightmareMagazine.com Sabbatical in the Ohio Methlands And the story is by Joe McKinney Not really zombies Not like in the movies anyway To begin with, they're alive And they don't eat their victims They'll rape you, rob you, murder you, sure, but not eat you. The rest of it's the same, though. They lurch around looking dead. They smell dead. Boils, abscesses, old infected injuries. They all do their part in approximating putrefaction. Sometimes a murmuring haze of flies will surround their eyes and mouths. They look like skeletons in leather sheets. Their knee joints have a bigger circumference than their thighs. Starvation and malnutrition are the norm but their crippled movements and disoriented moaning can be deceptive. Step into the street with your head elsewhere and they'll swarm you. Afterwards, your corpse will look like it's been eaten. But they don't eat you. Just tear you up. I've seen it happen too many times. Some family in a station wagon just passing through, gets lost, doesn't see the roadblocks. College kids looking for a gag. Survivalists testing their mettle and failing. I haven't watched them get an Ohio State Trooper once, but usually those guys know better. This is the sixth year I've been coming to what used to be Gatling, Ohio. Like most of the small towns in America's midsection, Gatling was abandoned after the meth rebellion of 2019, given over to the meth zombies who now wander its streets and sleep in the doorways of its uninspired post-World War II architecture. The buildings are falling apart. Few of the windows remain unbroken. Insulation hangs from the ceilings. Scrolls of wallpaper curl off the walls. The only life here is that which feeds off meth and wanders the streets, moaning like something out of a Romero film, looking for the high that will take them through the coming night. Luckily, the little second-floor dentist office I've taken over as my observation point has escaped the deprivations. During the day, when the meth zombies are most active, I can sit at the window and get film footage or dictate notes, whatever I feel like doing. At night, I sit in the old patient's chair and read Jack Finney novels and drink gin. It's diligent field work, don't get me wrong, but I enjoy my summers here in Gatling just the same. Gene Northrop, a chemistry professor at Texas A&M, has a similar setup across town in the old New Life Baptist Church. I've seen him around some. 
He's working on a paper on aboriginal techniques for methamphetamine production in the post-industrial ruins of abandoned America. Sometimes, late at night, I'll hear a building explode at the edge of town, and I think to myself, ah, one of Gene's grad students just scored himself a paper. Some night soon, I'm going to visit him. Maybe we can compare notes. In the meantime, I've been working on a paper on the mating habits of the female meth... Okay, I need to change gears for a second. There was a noise outside the door just a bit ago, and I had to make sure it wasn't a wrecking party. The males can be dangerous when they're scavenging for a high. I had to shoot a few of them earlier this month. I hated doing it, but I have to preserve this observation post. Luckily, it was only Susan. She started coming here to my office two years ago. She's a white female, early 20s, which means that she was probably still in her teens when the rebellion happened. The meth has charred most of her mind to cinders, but her survival instincts are still strong. She caught me off guard the first time she came here. It was late at night. I had gone through a lot of gin. I got up from my dentist chair to jot down some notes on something I'd seen that day, forgetting the door was still unlocked. I heard a floorboard creak and turned around. She was squatting in the middle of the floor, dressed in rags, her long brown hair a frazzled, shaggy mass around her dirty face, nicks and cuts all over her hands and arms. Have you ever been watched by a squirrel? Same nervous, unblinking look I got from her. I tried to speak, but she scrambled toward the door. She didn't make it far, though. She was hungry, dehydrated, her body weak. I gave her some clean water and let her sleep on my couch. When she woke the next morning, she was going through withdrawal. She looked at the clean clothes I'd dressed her in, touched her face that I'd scrubbed clean, and panicked. Residual feelings of violation? I wondered. I watched her from my desk. I put a military MRE on the floor. She snatched it up and backed toward the open door. I didn't make a move to stop her. Just went on, smiling. I was delighted when she came back the next night. We developed a routine. I'd leave the door cracked at night, a little food and water on the chair next to my bed. Though she never talked, she could still communicate with her eyes and her body language. She seemed grateful. I know I was. I started calling her Susan after this girl I used to dream of dating back in my grad school days. I don't think my meth girl minded. She seemed a comfort to her, just as she became a comfort to me. She became my bulwark against the loneliness that used to overwhelm me here at night in the meth lands. I've been back in Gatling for three days now. That first night, when I was still getting settled, she came to me. She had something to show me, a memento of our last night together, last August. Now I'm sitting here at my desk, watching her rub her belly, and I can't help but wonder if her baby will be born without a soul, or if it'll lose it along the way. Like its father. Shelly B. is someone I met a few years ago, and who had a very strange story to tell. It's a tale that, specifically in terms of subject matter, encompasses A. the sighting of a strange creature, B. a case of bizarre shape-shifting, and C. a weird music-based synchronicity. As for the story itself, well, I've now spoken to Shelley on many occasions to discuss her experience. Either her claim is true, or it's an outright lie. There really is very little room for any other possibility. And I have to say that having got to know Shelley as a friend... 
I don't doubt her word at all. Now, with all that said, read on. This is a story from MysteriousUniverse.org. Werewolves of London and a Texas Chupacabra. And this story is by Nick Redfern. On one occasion in June 2009, Shelley was driving along the Oklahoma 9 East Road, which links Oklahoma towns of Norman and Tecumseh, when something truly extraordinary occurred. Out of the trees on the right-hand side of the road loomed what looked just like what had become known as the Texas Chupacabra. We're talking about a gray-blue, skinny, hairless beast that appears extremely strange. For the most part, the Chupacabra of the Lone Star State is actually a coyote with a number of really strange mutations. Shelley's story, however, pushes things down a very different path, as you'll now see. Back to the story. Since it was around 10 a.m. when Shelley's sighting occurred, she said, the road was quiet, the school runs were over, and most people were at work. Rather oddly, but also intriguingly, when Shelley slowed down on the Oklahoma 9 East Road, she was amazed by the sight of a creature that stood around 60 feet to her right. She felt a sudden, foreboding sense of isolation, of almost being in a vacuum, of being in a situation that wasn't quite right. For around a minute or more, said Shelley, the animal stared intently at her, something which gave her the chills and a distinct feeling that it was trying to communicate with her. It was as if she could see it in my mind as well as on the road. But it was what happened immediately afterwards which upped the weird stakes to an incredible level. The animal sauntered across Oklahoma 9 East, and as it did so, something astounding occurred. It started to shimmer and blur. For a second or so, it appeared to take on the lumbering form of a small bear, then that of what appeared to be a sleek black cat before finally returning to its original form of a Texas chupacabra. Bearing in mind that this all occurred at the height of a hot summer morning, I asked Shelley if it was possible that what appeared to be a mutation of the animal's physical form might actually have been caused by a rippling, sizzling heat haze on the road ahead of her. Shelley was absolutely sure that was not the case. She insisted that the creature she saw literally and briefly shapeshifted, although I must make it clear she did not use that emotive and inflammatory terminology. Stunned by what was going down, Shelley simply sat and stared as the animal wandered into the trees on the opposite side of the road and vanished, never to resurface. That wasn't the only strange thing that happened. As she drove away, in fairly shaky fashion, Shelley turned on the radio. The song that was playing was Warren Zevon's song, Werewolves of London. No one needs to be told that werewolves are shapeshifters. The weirdness didn't end there. Later that day, Shelley had a call from an old school friend, Mandy, who was in the process of moving to Oregon and scouting around the area for potential homes. For no real reason, Mandy happened to mention that a large black panther had been seen roaming around Deschutes County, the area to where she was moving. Shelley found all of this to be deeply strange. She had seen a coyote chupacabra morph into a bear and a large cat, and then, as the day progressed, she found herself in situations involving just such a large cat in another state and shape-shifting werewolves in London. Aimee Mpane remembers when he first saw the old statues. 
It was 1994, and the Congolese visual artist had just moved to Belgium, which once ruled his country. Growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mpane says he had been taught in school that the Congolese were descended from the Gauls, that they were our kings. In our school books, it was as if the Congolese did not exist without the Belgian colonists, says Mpane, 50. His work explores the memory of colonialism in Congo and Belgium. I wanted to know what the Belgians knew about us. From NPR.org, a story entitled, Where Human Zoos Once Stood, a Belgian museum now faces its colonial past. And this story is by Joanna Kakissis. So he set out for the place where he thought he'd find some answers. The Royal Museum for Central Africa in the Flemish village of Tervuren. When I walked inside, it struck me that our history had been confiscated, he says through a translator, that when our children come here, they would not see a positive image of themselves. They would see statues depicting Africans as primitives, their children clinging to the robes of heroic white Europeans. Among them was a giant sculpture of the bearded King Leopold II, whose history of brutality and racism was long hidden in Belgium. Growing up in the 1950s, even Guido Grisils, the museum's current director, didn't know its history. When we went to school, a lot of our teachers were former missionaries, so the education that we got was that Belgium brought civilization to Congo, that we did nothing but good in Congo, Grisils says. We were all given a very favorable view of colonialism. I can't remember a single negative comment. Later, the spin turned to silence, according to Sarah Van Buren, a professor of African history at The Ohio State University, who grew up in Belgium. The University of Leuven, where she obtained her bachelor's and master's degrees, did not have courses on colonial history, and this was the 1990s, she says. Research by the University of Ghent, which revealed that Leopold's colonization caused mass death in Congo, was largely ignored. This silence is familiar across Europe. Even today, European countries that participated in the land grab known as the Scramble for Africa, which began in the late 19th century and became the largest such conquest in history, are unable to wholly face how ruinous colonization was for Africans. In 1870, roughly 80% of Africa south of the Sahara was under kings, chiefs, traditional leaders, says American author Adam Hochschild, who wrote the influential book King Leopold's Ghost. But 35 years later, virtually the whole of sub-Saharan Africa was European colonies or protectorates, or white settler-ruled colonies like South Africa. The 1884-85 Berlin Conference initiated the division of Africa among Great Britain, France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, and Germany. In Belgium's case, Leopold hired explorer Henry Morton Stanley to stake out the huge, mineral-rich land around the Congo River. Leopold also managed to persuade all the major nations of the world, including the United States, to recognize Congo Free State, as he called it, as belonging only to him. Over the next 23 years, he reaped an enormous fortune by turning the Congolese into slave laborers to gather wild rubber. Rubber grew wild throughout the Central African rainforest, Hochschild says. The king took his private army, 19,000 men, and would send the soldiers from village to village. 
The soldiers would hold the women of the village hostage in chains and force the men of each village to go into the rainforest and gather wild rubber from vines that twined around the trees. Those who refused were killed. Soldiers punished men who didn't gather the monthly quota of wild rubber by hacking off their children's hands and feet. Millions died of disease, starvation, or violence. Amy Mpane, the Congolese visual artist, read these accounts in Belgium with horror. He thought about the Royal Museum for Central Africa and its statues depicting heroic white men. I thought to myself, they believe this is normal, he says. I was shocked that people could think this is normal. The Royal Museum for Central Africa began as a temporary exhibition in 1897 in Tervuren, where Leopold had his country estate. The most talked about part of the exhibition was the Human Zoo, a mock African village set up in the estate's woods and ponds. King Leopold, who never set foot in Congo, imported 267 Congolese men, women, and children to Tervuren and displayed them behind a fence. When Leopold heard they were getting sick because of candy they were eating that was tossed to them by the crowd, he put up an equivalent of a Don't Feed the Animals sign at a zoo, saying, The blacks are fed by the organizing committee, Hoschild said in a documentary based on his book. Seven Congolese died of pneumonia and influenza at this human zoo and were buried in Tervuren. Marie-Claire Lusamba, a Congolese businesswoman living in Belgium, leaves flowers at their grave before exploring the serene park that used to be the human zoo. She says the racism she sees in Belgium is directly tied to colonialism. If they acknowledge that, then we can move forward, she says, because it did not stop with Leopold in this human zoo. The king eventually hired French architect Charles Gerault in 1904 to design a palatial neoclassical building to house the museum and its artifacts. Leopold burned most of his colonial documents before he sold Congo to the Belgian state in 1908. Fifty years later, Belgium built another mock African village at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair. The Congolese who traveled to Belgium for the exposition thought it would be a cultural exchange, says Zana Edambala, a historian at the Royal Museum for Central Africa. Instead, they found themselves standing behind a bamboo fence on live display for Europeans, some of whom made monkey noises to get their attention. They were throwing bananas and peanuts to the Congolese, says Edambala, who grew up in Belgium and Congo, and the Congolese protested against that, they wanted to be respected and not seen as animals in a zoo. Congo won its independence in 1960. In the late 1990s, Hotschild's book and a government inquiry into the 1961 assassination of Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba prompted Belgians to start digging into the dark side of colonial history. The Royal Museum for Central Africa, however, remained stuck in the 1950s. So in 2001, its trustees hired Guido Graciles, an agricultural economist who had worked extensively throughout the African continent, as its director. They brought me here just to reform it, Graciles says. Obviously, our colonial past is something that we have to deal with. The museum finally closed for massive renovations in 2013, after years of planning. We walk a tight rope, Graciles says, between those who fear this transformation won't go far enough and others who fear it'll go too far. Ex-colonialists in their 70s and 80s, for example, don't want the museum to vilify them, Graciles says. 
They believed they helped Congo. They learned local languages and married Congolese. Belgian diplomat Rainier Njiskins used to speak on their behalf. They wouldn't like to die being seen as ugly abusers, people who are associating themselves with an evil project, Njiskins says over a coffee at a Brussels hotel. They are convinced that the Belgian Congo was not an evil project. They felt like a father who had to take good care of kids, and when the kid would grow, he will fly his own wings and go away. And they had the sense that this was the normal course of history. Belgians of Congolese descent are appalled by this paternalism. Some want to close King Leopold's museum or cut him out altogether. Everything in that museum belongs to the Congolese, says art curator Cesarin Sinadu Bolia. King Leopold was a madman. Boya is seated at a restaurant in Matange, the most interesting neighborhood in staid, Eurocrat-filled Brussels. Matange is named after a part of the Congolese capital, Kinshasa, and was settled by Congolese immigrants. Boya is sharing spicy vegetables and beers with a novelist, a cartoonist, and a singer who belts out a love ballad that Boya describes as very dramatic. Bolia works with a non-profit that records Congolese oral history. I do not believe this museum can decolonize unless Congolese are in charge of it or unless the artifacts are returned to Congo, she says. In the end, there was a compromise. Some of the old exhibits remain, but now they come with explanations about Leopold's brutality. The museum space has also double its previous size, with a new building that includes exhibits on Congolese history and culture. The renovation is expected to cost nearly $90 million. We want our museum to become a forum for people to share history, says Grisils, the museum director. We are creating a gallery for the Congolese where they'll be able to bring their own memories and archives. There will be a timeline about Africans in Belgium, what brought them here, what are their interests, their frustrations. They themselves will fill up this gallery. At first, this talk of shared history wasn't enough to encourage Aimé Mpane, the Congolese visual artist. He kept thinking about the prominent statues depicting Leopold as a noble man and European missionaries as heroes with black children clinging to their feet. When the museum began the rebranding, they asked me to participate, he says, but I didn't want to. I didn't think it would do any good. Then I was told about a competition to replace King Leopold's statue with an original work. Here was a chance, he told himself, to reclaim a small part of history. Mpane won the competition. His monumental sculpture, Congo New Breath, depicts a human rising from the rooted earth and looking to the sky. And when the Royal Museum for Central Africa reopens at the end of this year, it will be the main statue visitors see. If you've spent any time around roosters, you know that their morning crowing can be loud. That distinctive cock-a-doodle-doo is piercing. If you happen to be standing near a rooster sounding off, you're hit with a sound wave that's about 100 decibels. That's unpleasantly loud, like the whir of a chainsaw. If one cock-a-doodled right in your ear, the sound is even louder, over 140 decibels. Sounds that loud can cause damage in less than a second and are just shy of shattering your eardrum. In fact, roosters are so loud that it's surprising they aren't deaf from their own calls. So, Belgian researchers looked into it and found that they have special ears which allow them to crow to their heart's content without losing their hearing. 
From discovermagazine.com, this story is entitled, Roosters Have Special Ears So They Don't Crow Themselves to Death. Loud sounds above 120 decibels can cause permanent hearing losses because the intense air pressure waves can damage and even kill the cells that translate sounds into neurological signals. At more than 130 decibels, it takes less than a second to inflict lasting damage, so you'd think that roosters crowing every day would slowly squawk themselves to total deafness. Since they don't, scientists figure they must have some way of protecting their ears when they crow. So, researchers from the University of Antwerp and the University of Ghent in Belgium studied the ears of hens and roosters. They strapped microphones to three rooster heads, placing the business ends right at the animal's ear openings to measure the sound levels the animals experience when they crow. They also measured the crowing from different distances away. They then made micro-CT scans of hen and rooster ears to reconstruct the geometry of their ear canals when their beaks are open and closed. The rooster crows they measured were more than loud enough to be potentially damaging, often over 100 decibels, and one animal in particular crowed at over 140 decibels. When the researchers looked at their ears, they saw how the animals are able to be so loud without going deaf. Their ears are blocked when they crow. When the animals open their beaks fully, their external auditory canals completely closed off. So, basically, roosters have built-in earplugs. Interestingly, this only happened in the roosters. In the hens, the canals shut somewhat, but don't close completely because of slight differences in the morphology of their ears. And that weirdly makes sense, since they don't need the sound damper to prevent damage. Hen calls are much quieter, about 70 decibels, and even the loudest rooster call was only 100 decibels at a distance of 50 centimeters. Unless roosters are crowing right in their hen's ears, there's no chicken-produced noise that's loud enough to cause hens permanent damage. That suggests that as roosters got louder and louder, to more definitively tell other roosters to stay away from their hens, the shape of their ears slowly changed too. And that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If loudness made a rooster more fit, then it follows the most successful reproducers would be individuals with slight ear modifications that allowed them to be louder without going deaf. So, the next time a rooster rudely awakens you from a peaceful slumber, remember that his poor hens have no such built-in ear protection. Without those anatomical earplugs, they're forced to listen to those crows at full volume. And you might want to be thankful that you have the choice of blocking out his annoying screeching with a pair of foam inserts. And now for a story entitled, Grandma Says We Can't Look Out the Windows. This is from the No Sleep subreddit, and it's written by N.M. Wrights. Everyone in my family lives in the same house. I don't mean the same physical house, like some big multi-generational living setup. No, almost every member of my family, direct and extended, lives in houses that are identical to each other. Large, Victorian, and kind of creepy if you're not used to it. When someone dies, the family gets another family member to live in that house instead. There are a few outliers, but honestly, they tend to be younger members of the family who will one day wind up living in one of the houses. I listened to a radio show once where people talked about the funniest things they misunderstood as kids. One person thought that Nielsen families were all families with the name Nielsen, and they got to grade TV shows because they represented some sort of perfect cross-section of America. 
Well, I thought everyone's families all lived in houses that looked exactly alike. This wasn't totally unfounded. I grew up in a small town, and the only friend of mine who had family there lived near each other in a little subdivision where all the houses were identical. It made sense. Setting aside my childhood misconceptions, the houses each had specific rules. Again, this was something I accepted as a child, though now I recognize how strange it was. When we visited my Aunt Megan's house, we had to wear two watches each. She insisted on it and would check each of us before coming in the door to ensure that both were working and synchronized. We were never allowed to go inside my Uncle Frank's house. We would meet him outside, play in the yard, and go to the bathroom in a porta potty he rented before our visits. From time to time, I would swear that I saw people wearing dark robes standing in the windows, watching us play in the yard. Our house was fairly normal as these things went. However, there were two doors on the upper level that had many locks on the doors, and I never once saw them opened. My cousins lived in the strictest of the houses. No one was ever allowed to walk around alone. You always had to be with a buddy, and you could never be out of sight of another person. Once, my sister wandered off alone and said she saw me playing upstairs and almost followed until I realized she was gone and called to her from downstairs and told her to come back. My grandparents, though, lived in a house where the windows were always closed. Every window throughout this house had a blackout shade and a heavy curtain around it, and we were forbidden to touch them. My sister and cousins would all try to peek out from time to time and were harshly scolded for it. But it never bothered me. The weird rules were just something I lived with. That is probably why my grandmother asked me to watch the house when she went away. My grandfather had passed a few years before, and one day she got a letter that a cousin somewhere overseas was ill, and she announced that she would be going there and would be gone for the summer. She chose me to check on the house once a day, feeding the cats and ensuring nothing had gone wrong. She told me I had always listened to the rules and was the only logical choice. I was the honey child. A weird phrase, to be sure. I didn't mind. It was school break, my girlfriend was on vacation, and the money my grandmother was paying me for the trouble was enough that I didn't have to get a job and could take a few extra classes online instead. The first few days were fine. I went in, checked all the bathrooms for water leaks, fed the cats, and left. A few days later, while walking upstairs, I passed a window and could hear the faint sound of voices through it. My grandmother lives on a remote and large piece of land, so hearing someone meant they were trespassing. Without thinking, I moved the curtains and pulled up the blinds. The world outside was not ours. Instead of my grandmother's yard, I was looking at a futuristic-looking city where people moved about on contraptions I had only seen in fake movies. I was so entranced watching people dart back and forth on contraptions straight out of a science fiction movie that for a minute I forgot that what I was looking at was literally impossible. I quickly moved to another window and opened the shades. Here I saw a dark beast floating just beyond the window. It looked like some sort of mutant bat with giant leathery wings and one unblinking yellow eye. Another window showed a burning hellscape as far as the eye could see. In the distance, I watched the outlines of giant beasts move through pools of fire. My head spinning, I went running to the front door and outside, ready for whatever insane world awaited me. Instead, I saw my car and my grandmother's yard and the trees that ring the property in the distance. Everything was fine. 
whatever I saw beyond the windows did not affect the world I lived in. Over the next few days, I started to catalog all of the worlds I saw. There were 32 windows, including one that appeared to just show our world. Some were frightening, like the fire world, or the world full of people as far as the eye could see with completely white eyes just standing and staring at the window. Others appeared desolate, like the ice world, or one that was heavily forested, but where I never saw a single living creature, not even a bird. Others appeared to be fairly normal, like ours, only slightly different. One seemed to contain just a single entity, the bat creature, though the bat often appeared as other things, from a child to a kitten to a fantastical-looking bird with four sets of wings and three heads. Every time I left the house, I carefully covered each window before locking up, careful to ensure nothing was out of place. This lasted until Gary and his girlfriend broke up. I was about to leave my grandmother's when he called, drunk and sobbing about her leaving him. What terrified me was that he was driving around, but after talking to him for a minute, I realized he was right down the road, so I told him to meet me there to sleep it off. I couldn't have him out potentially killing someone in his condition. Gary was a mess, so I got him to one of the bedrooms and went downstairs to find water and some Advil to take for what was sure to be a rough night. All the way down the hall, I could hear him crying about Amy. I was filling up the glass of water when I heard a scream and the lights in the house all went out. I stumbled upstairs with the flashlight on my phone to see Gary on the floor in front of an open window. What happened? I shouted. It was Amy. She was outside trying to climb in the window. She was going to fall, he sobbed. I slammed the window shut, but the bat creature that normally lurked just beyond it was now gone. Where did it go? I demanded. Gary shook his head. What was that thing? That wasn't Amy. He started crying again. I left him there and ran downstairs to find the front door now open and the beast gone into the night. My grandmother is gone for another few weeks and I don't have any way to reach her, but that thing is out there somewhere. I hear noises in the night now, giant wings flapping outside. Two children have disappeared from their yards without anyone seeing a thing. That window was closed for a reason. That concludes this episode of the Curse Land Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>